mystery of dark matter. It's Syzygy Live. And ladies and gentlemen, I think it is time to start. My name is Chris Stewart. Welcome to the Syzygy podcast. This is, this is very exciting. Emily Brunsden, my co- podcast co-host, just joined me here on the, on the Zoom. She's on the other side of the Zoom. She's on the other side of the country. Emily, hi. Hello, hello. This is, this is very exciting. We, we've done live shows before, but I don't think we've ever done a live broadcast show before. Have I got that right? That's probably right, yeah. You're not going to be able to edit out all the weird things that I say. I'm, I'm not. Actually, that's not strictly too, true. We did do a live broadcast to the stars. We actually broadcast an episode of the podcast to, what was the star? Where was it? Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Yeah, a number of episodes ago. Anyway, that's a story for, for another time. Welcome to the Syzygy podcast. For those of you who have listened before, you know what this is about. This is an astronomy podcast in which I, a non-astronomer, talk to Emily Brunsden, Dr. Emily Brunsden from the University of York Department of Physics, who is an astronomer and knows about this stuff, about all the fabulous things that happen in the universe. And tonight is a very, very exciting night because we're live. We're talking about a really, really interesting topic. And for the first time in like forever, we have a couple of very special guests who are going to join us a little bit later on in the show. We're going to be talking tonight about one of the most fascinating topics in all of astronomy, in a a field which is full of fascinating topics. We're going to be talking about one of the really big ones. We're talking about dark matter, this mysterious stuff that makes up, what is it, something like 80%, only 80% of the entire universe. So we'll be talking about that. But before we do, a couple of technical points. First of all, This is going out live as part of the York Festival of Ideas. We've done live shows at the York Festival before. Normally they've been in front of an audience rather than having you all hidden there behind your your Zoom app at home. And I'm just watching the numbers ticking over down below. We're we're up in the, somewhere approaching about 10,000 people watching this broadcast right now. Part of York Festival Ideas has gone completely online this year for for the obvious reasons. Um, And it's been going for the last couple of weeks. We've had more than 60 events across those two weeks. So there's still another weekend to go. So if you're you're interested, stick around to the end and we'll give you the information on how you can find out other stuff about the York Festival of Ideas. So thank you very much for for joining us on this one tonight. If you do happen to have a bit of a Wi-Fi glitch, you're kicked out, you can always rejoin the Zoom using the link that you got uh, with your invitation. So you can just come back and join us if you you get kicked out or if you need to duck out and make a cup of tea or go to the loo or something, you can come back in, that's all totally fine. And we're having a special question and answer session at the end of this show. Down the bottom of the Zoom screen, you should be able to see a Q&A button and a bunch of people have already got in there. Someone even got in before we'd even started. Before we'd even started the episode, someone was in with a question about dark matter. So if you wanna ask a question, we may not be able to get through all of them, but we will do our best to get through as many as we can. I'll be managing those as we, as we get to question and answer and, uh, and sending them out to Emily and to our special guests for this evening. So that's how that's gonna work. Emily, we're talking about dark matter tonight. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but dark matter is an ever so slightly embarrassing problem for astronomy. 
Is that right? Have I got that right? It's not a little thing. Absolutely. This is a big thing, right? What's going on? Absolutely. You ask, you ask an astronomer, what is, what's the universe made of? It's made of stuff, right? It's, it's yeah. stuff out there. If you yeah, talk yeah. about matter, then you say, well, there's lots of matter out there in the universe. But it turns out that we actually have no idea what 85% of that matter is. Okay, now hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's embarrassing. That's not right. Okay, you, you people, you astronomers, you've got some of the best instrumentation ever. Like you've got, tell, you've got telescopes in space, Emily. How can you not know what eighty-five percent of the stuff is? That's your job, surely. You had one job to know what the stuff is. Well, it gets what? worse than that because it's only, yeah, it's, it's, it's only been in the last kind of 50 years that we've even thought actually, definitely known, is it even there? We didn't know it was there for most of modern history. All right, we should, we should probably back up a little bit then. So, you know, it's easy to be facetious about this incredibly embarrassing problem for astronomers, but let's dig down into it a little bit. There's matter. Yeah. Ma when we talk about matter, we talk about, that's the, that's the stuff that, that, that me and the earth and this computer and everyone listening at home, it's the stuff that you're made of. It's the, it's the atoms and the particles. And it's, it also includes the, the photons of light and so on. It's the, it's, it's the stuff of the universe. And that's what we see. That's what we measure when we look up into the night sky, right? Like whenever you're making observations, you're making observations about stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So whilst we're observing things like stars and galaxies and planets, all those objects are made up of atoms, which have protons and neutrons and electrons and, you know, the stuff that we understand because it's the same stuff as what we have here on Earth. Okay, so where's the problem then? Clearly, if we are missing some ludicrous proportion of the stuff in the universe, we must have stumbled over that at some point. So tell us about dark matter. When did we discover that there was a problem? Well, we started doing some sums. I mean, astrophysicists love doing a few sums. And we were looking at particularly galaxies to begin with. So we were looking at how galaxies rotate. Um, so you might have seen some beautiful pictures of things, um, big spiral galaxies that spin around. And whilst they spin kind of slowly in terms of our sort of time, our lifetimes, actually there's a lot of matter in a galaxy. So it tends to spin pretty quickly. And if you do kind of a bit of a sum and you say, well, okay, what's, a what's in a galaxy? You've got stars, you've got these planets, you've got gas, you've got dust, you've got all black holes, everything. You did a sum and you added up all the mass that you've got in a galaxy. It turns out that you fall a long way short of being able to explain how fast that galaxy is spinning. And that's a big problem because... That, that is a problem because you, you really thought you understood what was going on, right? You just add up all the bits and you put it into the equations that we've known like forever and it should just work, but it really doesn't. Does yeah. It? And the consequence is that is that if you don't have some other matter there, turns out all your galaxies are going to spin and fly apart. Which clearly they're not doing. So ergo the, the, the matter must be there. So when are we talking about? When, when was this discovery made? So we started doing rotation curves after we sort of got into radio astronomy, which was kind of looking at light, but not looking at light that we can see, looking at radio waves, which right. you know, radio wave technology developed during the wars. And then uh, after that, astronomers started repurposing it. Right. So we're, we're talking sort of the, the golden age of radio astronomy, what, in the 1950s? 1950s, 1960s? Yeah, 50s, 60s, we started measuring okay. these galaxies. Yeah. So you're, you're looking at all this data coming from galaxy rotations and so on, and you realise that there's a serious, serious problem. 
in that we can't see a lot of the stuff that has to be there. And we know it has to be there because we can see how the galaxy is rotating. So, so what do you do as an astronomer at that point? What's your solution? So I guess you then start to make a list of things. Let's say, okay, we've got some mass. We know some things about it. We know that it doesn't um, interact with photons because if it produced light, for example, or if it interacted with photons in any other strong kind of way, then we would see it. You'd right? see it, right? That's, yeah. that's the whole point. That's yeah. what you do. As, as so, so the dark is kind of a good astronomical description of it. It's dark <laughs> because for the most part, it doesn't interact with photons. It's, it's not entirely true because one of the other ways we do see um, where dark matter is, is actually by looking at how photons bend as they travel through space. Right. But okay. Well, let's, let's come back to that for one. For the large part. So, so yeah. what you're saying is the, the dark in dark matter is most of everything else that we see, we see because of the interaction between light of some form, whether there's visible light or radio waves or x-rays or something, the interaction between photons and matter. You know, we, we see that interaction in some form. And you're saying that in most ways, at least, whatever this stuff is, it's not doing that. It's not having that interaction. It's dark. But it yeah. does have gravitational interaction. We know that because that's the point. It's doing stuff to these galaxies that we just can't explain in any other way. Exactly, yeah. So, so we can say it doesn't um, interact electromagnetically, which is you know, with photons, but it does interact with gravity. And that turns out that you can actually bend photons with a bit of gravity, which is right. a useful technique to spot this dark matter as well. Right. So the obvious question, Emily, is like you've had more than 50 years, and I'm looking at you directly now. I'm placing this responsibility directly on your shoulders as representative of the astronomical community. You've had more than 50 years to solve this problem. What are the best candidates so far? What's, what do we think this stuff is? Yeah, well, that's exactly kind of what the astronomers do. We, we draw up a list. These are all the possible ideas we can have, all the ways we can explain it. And we start off with, um, well, double checking our facts, double checking our measurements, double checking our theories. And yep. every test that we put our current theories through, every new observation that we make, it just doesn't change the answers that we're getting. Right. So, so we're it's kind not, of leaning away from those. It's ideas. not just, it's not just the, the, the rotation curves of, of galaxies either, is it? That there's there's other reasons to think that dark matter is there. It's not, it's not just that your equations of galaxies are broken. No, it's, it's, it's equations of physics, it's, it's gravity, it's, it's, it's all the things that we think we understand. Uh, and there's just no way that we can even reorganize those pieces of physics to get a consistent answer with dark matter. Mm. So we think that the physics is still right, and we think that dark matter is therefore a real thing. It's a real thing. It's just not clear exactly what it is. And it, I mean, it really does blow my mind that, what, the best part of 70 years later, we're still fumbling over this question. I mean, I say fumbling, that sounds really bad. We're still really working hard at this question of what is this 85% of the, of the universe? So, Emily, what are, the, what are the leading ideas? What are the leading candidates? Where, where yeah, so we've thrown, out, we've thrown out that our equations are wrong. We're confident yep. that that's not the case. Yep. We now got to the point of, well, there could be these kind of large clumps of stuff that we just didn't know about before. They like what be sort of? Could be like giant planets that we haven't seen before. Could okay. be black holes, big black holes in the universe we haven't seen before. You know, anything and everything we thought of. 
And what we've done is we've gone and surveyed the, the galaxy. We've done immense, very, very precise observations. And we're now so confident that we've done these surveys very, really well, that we know that there's no, nothing bigger than about half the mass of the Earth that could be dark matter. We're confident in that now. Right, okay. So the, that first idea is it's, it's dark in the sense that we don't see it, but it's, it's nothing special. It's, it's the same stuff that we have around us. It's just not going around stars. It's not lit up like a star. It's floating in space as, as you know, maybe planets or bits of stuff or loads more dust or whatever it is, but it's normal matter. It's, it's stuff that we recognize. And is what you're saying that that doesn't seem to be right. It's not that. It's not that. We went and hunted for that and we didn't find it. It's so not there. It's not there. Yeah. Okay. So what else have we got then? If it's not stuff we recognize, it's something new? Yeah. So we've got to go down the list of possibilities. And the next one on the list, which is uh, the one that we're going to be looking at into tonight, is um, the best type of dark matter candidate we have is something called a wimp. A wimp. A wimp. A wimp. Is that opposed? I remember reading about this. Is that opposed to wimps and machos? Was the macho the previous one? Yeah, the machos are the big things. What does that and stand the for? The little things. The macho stands for? Massive compact halo objects. Right, okay, so that's the machos. And then the wimps are? Weakly interacting massive particles. Okay, so tell me about wimps. How, does, how, how would a wimp solve our problem tonight? So wimps are, the, are one of our best candidates for dark matter because, so if you go through the name, it actually kind of leads you through what they are. So they're particles, if we start at the end. They've mm -hmm. got some mass. That's great. Mm -hmm. That helps us with the, the mass problem. Okay, good. Uh, and they're weakly interacting. So they don't interact electromagnetically, or if they do, it's so subtle that we just can't detect it. Right. Okay, but that's, that's kind of cheating, isn't it? Because all you're really doing is just restating the problem. You've just said, you know, dark matter. No, no, no. It's, it's weakly interacting massive particles. Great. What are they? <laughs> we, have yeah. we found any of these? And I guess we'll, we'll get to that in a minute when we talk to our guests. But you know, we've, we've been talking about this for a while as a species, as a, as a field of astronomy. Has there been any success to date? There has. Well, we've discovered loads of particles. I mean, if there's one thing we are good at, it's finding particles. Yes, it has been, <laughs> has been, a, good, has been a good half a, half a century for particles as well. It's true. Yeah. Uh, so and one example which you might have heard of before is the neutrino. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, a very, very tiny particle. So tiny, it barely has any mass at all. Well, I mean, there was even mass. Yeah, there was there was a lot of consternation about do they have mass? Do they not have mass? I don't know. I mean, it's so small, it's even so hard to detect. But that's for sure now. They definitely yeah, they, they've have got mass. tiny, tiny, tiny mass. Fantastic. Uh, and neutrinos are everywhere. They're produced in the fusion reactions in the sun. They're produced in supernova. They're, they're just all over the show. There are um, ludicrous numbers passing through our bodies every second from the sun. I remember reading that. Yeah, exactly. So neutrinos are neutral, so they don't interact kind of with normal atoms, which is why they kind of just pass through us. They pass right. through you and I, they yep. pass through the earth. They just, they're just not interested, basically. Mm -hmm. So they were one of the ideas of these kind of wimps that would put forward and think, well, you know, if you add up all the neutrinos, does that explain dark matter? And so does it? I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. just right. not a problem. <laughs> okay. So it could have been neutrinos. Neutrinos do have mass, but it's not neutrinos. It's something else. Okay, next. Well, then we started hunting for other particles that it could be. So there's lots of um, criteria. It's actually, we keep saying as astronomers, we don't know anything about dark matter. We actually 
know quite a lot of what dark matter is and what it isn't in terms of the boundary conditions. We know it must have done particular things at the very beginning of the universe. We know it must do particular things now. So any uh, candidate for dark matter that's put forward must do particular things because we've made the observations and we can see them. Right. What you're so, saying is, it's, is what, whatever we find or whatever we hypothesize, whatever we're looking for, it's got to fit with all the other observations we've got. And we do have a lot of them going right back to almost the Big Bang. We're, we're very close to the Big Bang and we've got a lot of observations. And so it's, it's all got to match up in the middle. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And this is what got me so excited when I found out that my colleagues here at York had not only looked into one of these um, candidate particles, but found some stuff that starts to put the jigsaw puzzle pieces in place. And that yeah. is just amazing. That is pretty exciting. Well, now might be a really good time then to introduce our very special guests here tonight from the University of York. Please make very, very welcome. And I know we can't hear you applauding at home, but do it anyway for Dan Watts and Mikhail Bashkanov. Sorry, <laughs> stumbled no over his name there, but I'm probably not the first. Thanks for joining us. This is, this is very exciting. And it's exciting for both Emily and myself, because Emily is the astronomer who's hunting professionally for dark matter and would really love to know what it is. And for me, because I'm a lapsed particle physicist, right? 20 years ago, I did a PhD on quarks and particle physics, and I haven't done it since. And so anything that involves the stuff that you're looking into called a hexaquark, I'm all over that. That is really, really exciting. So welcome to the show. First of all, let me ask you, what exactly is it that we're talking about here tonight? We've heard Emily talking about WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. We've ruled out the neutrino. It's not that. So clearly it must be something new. So what is it that the two of you reckon you've found? Um, okay, well, maybe I um, so uh, a, a new particle, which is, as you mentioned, the hexaquark. So you're probably familiar, of course, you have the atom and you have the nucleus. And within the nucleus, you have the protons and neutrons that are made of three quarks. Yeah, and, and for a long time, most of the particles discovered were either made of three quarks, by the proton and the neutron, or made of two quarks, for example, particles like mesons. Um, so Mikhail, Mikhail um, carried out some experiments before joining us in York, colliding protons and neutrons together, and found strong evidence for this particle that's actually made of six quarks, which is you know very unusual. And he actually came to join us at York to uh, to join in the program with using very intense beams of photons to look for these particles, where we're again seeing very strong evidence that they exist. Now this is this is really really interesting because. As we mentioned a minute ago, you know, we've had 70, 80 years of this, of this huge explosion in our, in our understanding of, of you know, the, the, the fundamental level of matter in the universe. And you were talking about quarks, the stuff that's around us, the protons and neutrons that make up the nucleus in all of the atoms mm. around us are made up of quarks, three quarks each. And we found all sorts of different things, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago made out of all sorts of different combinations of these things. But is this the first time that we found a combination of quarks other than 
threes and twos? Is this the first time that's come up? Well, it is uh, maybe hard to say. We have hints before that uh, we might see particles with six quarks, with five quarks, with four quarks, and that uh, the most compelling evidence for a four quark states come from a uh, uh, Large Hadron Collider, 2002. Right. Uh, for most of these particles, we are not actually sure how many quarks are inside. It is very hard to say if particle leaves for 10 to minus 24 seconds to count how many of them are inside. Yeah, now that's so a really it, important point, isn't it? Because the yeah. thing that, that, that we're talking about here, this it's called the D-star hexaquark. Have I yes. got that right? Okay. Yes, that's but correct. But the D-star hexaquark lasts for a very, very short period of time in the laboratory, right? In, yes. the, in, the, in the particle collisions. How long did you say? 10 to minus 24 seconds. 10 to the minus 24, 24. seconds. That's, that's 0. 0.0000, lots of zeros. Yes. More zeros than you really can be bothered counting. Hmm. Seconds. That's yeah. ridiculously small amounts of time. So I've got a lot of questions about that. I'm going to shelve that for a second. Okay. Point is, how do you know that it's got six quarks in it? That's such a short period of time. How could you possibly know that? Well, because we can measure how it decays. And if we count the number of quarks of the partic decaying particles, we sum them up together exactly like Emily sums of galaxies, and we come out that there were six quarks in the very beginning. Gotcha. Yeah. So you, you can work backwards from what you get to figure out what you had, yeah. and it's six quarks, albeit yes. for a very, very short period of time. So that's from a particle physics point of view. That's really exciting. And that's the sort of thing that, that you know, makes me sit up and, and take notice. And, and a lot of, a lot of science nerds out there will be very excited about that. But what is it that makes the D star interesting for the Emilies of the world, the astronomers of the world? Why would a D star particle, which lasts for 10 to the minus 24 seconds, how on earth could that possibly be a candidate for dark matter? I mean, one of the most important properties of this new particle is that it's what's called a boson, which means okay. so the, every particle has some intrinsic spin. The protons and neutrons have a spin of a half. Electrons have a spin of a half. And that means that in the quantum mechanics, you really hate to be in the same place. So everything around us is mainly empty space because the electrons stack up in the energy levels because of the fermions. If they weren't, they would all drop to the ground state and there'd be no chemistry. You know, everything would be a lot more compact. Right. Uh, so what, you, what you're saying is that the, the stuff that all of the matter that we see around us, all the, the normal hard stuff of desks yeah. and, and people and so on, it's all made up of, of a type of particle called a fermion, which has a particular yeah. kind of physics. And protons and neutrons made of quarks, they're fermions. But this one, the D star, it's not a fermion. It's, it's, a, it's doing different physics here. And yeah. why does that allow it? Why does that put it up as a, as a candidate for dark matter? Where do you then make that step? So the fact that it's a boson, these kind of particles have exactly the opposite behavior. They can't wait to get into the same place. <laughs> they all want to get into the same state, jumping in the so, so they can form what's called a condensate, where effectively the electrons in the atom couldn't drop to the bottom state but these bosons can, so they can all drop into the lowest possible state 
to form what's called a, a Bose condensate or a Bose Einstein condensate. Right. So they like hanging out together. They like gathering. Yeah, in, they're really in a, in, a, in a large mass. Yeah. That's that's great, but but I'd like to bring you back to something your colleague said a minute ago, Dan. Mikhail said these things last for ten to the minus twenty-four of a second. And Emily, I could be wrong here, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the universe has been around for considerably longer than that. Mm. So <laughs> we, we've got we've got some ground to make up here, Dan. And well, uh, maybe I, 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 yeah, maybe I can say so. We have examples how this happen and like neutrons. Right. Neutrons are living for like 11 minutes uh, if they're in free space, 10, maybe you're 11, yeah. But if you put them inside nuclei, they live for quite some time. So we know that we can take a brick of gold from Romans and they will be still the same brick of gold. So if you put, if you put neutrons and protons together in the nucleus, yeah. that makes the neutrons much more stable much more resistant to falling yeah. apart as they would yeah. do if they were just so flying. you get some binding energy which keep them together and prevent neutron from decay okay okay so, so the main thing which you look for looking for is an extra attraction and both einstein condensation is provide us with extra attraction because all of these particles try to jump together in one place they try to be close together, and that's exactly the attraction they, we are looking for, and that's an attraction which prevents them from decaying within 20 to minus 24 seconds. They suddenly they, become stable. And they can only do that if they have this special kind of, of physics, if we like to call it that way, the boson physics. Not the fermion kind, but the boson kind. That's the only kind of physics. They're the only kinds of particles which will allow them to form these sorts of condensates. Is that right, yes. Dan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in sort of thinking about this, I mean, the, one of the most famous um, states of a nucleus, the Hoyle state, which is key for helium particles sticking together to form carbon in the sun. Um, a lot of the modeling of this state, uh, the properties of this state uh, are fitted best. If you assume that has some component, which is a Bose condensate of alpha particles, which are also bosons as well. We so were talking can, about that a couple of uh, couple of podcasts yeah. ago, Emily, when we were talking about uh, about the what was the famous paper the the B two FH the B two FH paper yes yeah. and Hoyle <laughs> we were talking about the, the yeah. Hoyle state there okay okay yeah. so we we seem to be making some progress here we have <laughs> we have a particle right the D star hexaqua which is exciting in and of itself but it can form because of its special physics it can form this condensate, this Bose-Einstein condensate, which means that it can clump together in ways, it can stick together, we can be bound, if you like, in ways that, that other particles normally wouldn't, which means it might be more stable, it could stick around a hell of a lot longer than 10 to the minus 24 of a second. So that's great. So my last really big stumbling block on this one, because this is all sounding really good, I'm on your side, mm -hmm. is, yeah, but we don't, we don't see a lot of them around. Like you had to work really hard to make one of these. You know, it's not like you can just sort of, oh, there's one and pick it up and have a look at it. We don't, we just don't find them. So how could it be that a ludicrously elusive particle suddenly solves this problem for 85% of the universe? Mm -hmm. 
I don't know, Dan, do you want to field that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a speculative idea, but as we've seen, we, you know, we're looking for new ideas for this thing. <laughs> so yeah. I've been yeah. drawing a blank up today. <laughs> but in terms of like whether you, I mean, it's a little bit, it's analogous to how, I mean, why does light go through a window or, or through a crystal of diamond, for example? So, I mean, clearly the, the light goes through and will encounter millions and billions of particles as it goes through. And we know that light will quite happily interact with each of these particles, the electrons, for example. You know, this really strongly, it will see one, it will interact with it in some way. Um, but if you, in, in things like diamond and glass, um, the electrons form something that is not a condensate, but it's kind of a little bit analogous in that you have two bands of energy levels. You have the valence band, where all the, the electrons being involved in the kind of structure are. And then you have a, a higher a higher energy, you have this conduction band, which is like a wonderland of free quantum states that an electron could go into. Um, but visible light doesn't have enough energy to promote those electrons up to there. So it passes through billions and billions of these electrons and the, the whole thing is transparent. Whereas if you looked at glass with higher energy, say X-rays, where it has enough energy to do this, it's actually opaque. So whether you can actually see, you know, see things visibly depends a lot on the, what, how the properties are contained within the material itself. Sure, that makes sense. Okay. And things like a super, um, uh, like a superconductor as well, which is a little bit analogous to what we're talking about. So the electrons can form Cooper pairs, which are in the simple model of superconductivity, which is like pretend little bosons, and then they can drop into a superconducting state, and as they're passing through the gazillions of electrons that they could scatter off and encounter resistance. They don't have enough energy to go to one of these free quantum states, so they just pass through. So you can have currents going around a superconducting loop forever, which is weird. I mean, it definitely is. You know, the, the, I mean, quantum, it's, it's sort of quantum writ large, isn't it? Where, yeah, when, yeah. You, when you get into those kinds of, kinds of phenomena where stuff which we would normally expect to happen, like electrical resistance, for example, just doesn't apply in this particular case because it's in this, this special quantum state. And so is what you're saying that, that this particular kind of particle in this particular condensate state, look, it's, it's just going to have properties which kind of line up with the sort of thing that we expect we would see from dark matter. It's, it's going to be dark. Yeah. It's going to be dark for lower energy particles, but it may be not so dark for very high energy cosmic rays. Right. Because the that... energy of cosmic ray is enough to break it. And that's why we might see effects of cosmic ray breaking near condensate, or in other words, interacting with dark matter. But for this, you need very high energy cosmic rays, and that's exactly the way how we are going to detect these mysterious particles. So like looking from a glass, we should not see using light, but X-rays, here we should use cosmic rays. So you, what you're suggesting there is that there may be a few experimental observational things that we can look for, ideas mm. that we can look for to say, hang on, we didn't, we didn't expect to see that, and we do, and it's kind of the, kind of the signature that we might be looking for. Emily, I'm going to throw to you at, at this point. You've been, you've been sitting there very quietly as the astronomer. 
I don't know. Are you convinced? Is this, is this solving all your problems? Are you <laughs> doing a little excited astronomer jig over there or are you raising a skeptical eyebrow? What do you think? <laughs> I, I, am, I am quietly excited and I'm especially excited to hear that we can do more observational tests because there's, you know, there's nothing more exciting than being able to go and get out my telescope again and say, well, okay, let's put this to the test. Um, so what Mikhail was saying about cosmic rays is really exciting because it turns out that cosmic rays are ubiquitous throughout the universe, right? These are not rare things. Cosmic rays are extraordinarily high energy um, objects or particles and, and also photons you can get, which come from, you know, ultra, ultra high energy environments, but environments that we do understand and can observe. So things like supernova reactions or uh, the centers of galaxies that are undergoing insane jets that we've talked about, I think, several times. So, you know, these, these cosmic rays are out there. I mean, I would normally, as an astronomer, say they're a pain in the neck, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that I try and get rid of because I don't, um, if you've ever seen, um, if you take very, very long exposures in photography on CCD cameras, cosmic rays are things that light up your CCDs and cause streaks to your images where you don't actually want them. So in my actual research, I spend about 50% of my time trying to get rid of these cosmic rays. <laughs> but now I can just hand them over to you guys and say, you know, yeah, yeah. sort it out. <laughs> it's a win-win. That, that works. That's good. Yeah. One thing that, I, that, I'm, that I'm still really curious about, though, is, and I, and I sort of alluded to it before, and, and I don't know which of the three of you is, is going to be able to answer this one. So I'm just going to throw it out to you and let you fight it out amongst yourselves. How where did they come from you know like as i said before we we had to work hard to make to make one of these things we've got to bash stuff together really really hard and, and look really carefully to, to find them but 85 percent of the universe of the stuff in the universe has to be accounted for and so if it's going to be accounted for by d star hexaquarks there's got to be a lot of them out there where'd they come from who wants to field that one? Emily, um, Kyle, Dan, anyone? I, 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 can, I can try. All right, if you allow me. Come on. <laughs> so let, let's go back in time to very, very beginning of the universe. Let's so we have a big, big spot of quark soup. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of quarks moving around. So there are no protons, no neutrons. Their temperature is too high for them to form. So we're way back. Like this is this is right. before atoms. This is before any of this stuff. Yeah, before, far before. Atoms, yeah. How like how how long after the Big Bang are we talking? Really, like fraction, fraction of, of a second. Let's fraction say. of a second. Okay. So boom, and then we're there. Quark yeah. soup. Good. Quark soup. All just quarks. They cannot see neighboring quarks because there are too many of them, and the interaction is screened. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why protons can be formed. Now, the soup is expanding, and it's cooling down. And at some point, they, uh, their quarks start to see each other. So they can form protons or neutrons or hexaquarks or hexaquark condensate. Now, since hexaquark condensate is a lot more bound, it is a more preferable for quarks to make a condensate rather than make proton. And one can calculate what is the difference in energy benefits you get. And from these energy benefits, you can say how many hexaquarks should be formed and how many protons. 
And if you plug in all the numbers, it works out quite well. So you get your 85% of dark matter and only like 15% uh, of normal matter. Okay, so have I, have I got this right? That the picture that you're painting is this, is this quark soup and the very properties that, that you're, you're discovering, you're, you're hypothesizing about this, this D-star is that it actually really likes to form these, these clusters. I mean, it likes to form protons and neutrons as well, but it, yeah. it actually really likes to form this condensate. And in the very conditions at the beginning of the universe, where there's loads of energy, quarks swimming around, you're saying it could have actually just made loads of this stuff, but then the universe cooled, what, to a point where that wasn't energetically viable before? And, that, and that's it. We've, then we've got, we've got the hexaquark condensate, and that's out there, and we've got yeah. the protons and neutrons, and then that's it. And that's, that's what we've got now. And we've just never noticed all of those hexaquarks before. Is that right? Well, Emily noticed it. Fair <laughs> <laughs> point. This is, this is amazing. I was really, I was going to let you guys off the hook and I was going to say, you know, you don't have to explain all of the 85%. I'm happy to, I'm happy to take several wimps as, as a solution to dark matter, but if you can do all of it, put it on the table and say, we've got it. We have nailed the 85%. Wow. It's a speculative idea that's, that's yeah. new, and I think it's you know it's in the early stages, but it's it's very I, we find it very interesting. So Dan, are you being the the voice of reason here and saying, now hang on, <laughs> we're not actually. I'm not often that, but uh, yeah. maybe I am. <laughs> Save the, the Nobel Prize for, for later. We'll worry about that another time. But yeah. I mean, that is a really interesting point, right? Because it's it is such a big question. It's, it's one of the biggest questions in, in astronomy, surely. I mean, would that be right, Emily, that this, this, is, this is one of the big remaining questions is we've got to nail this one down, right? It's such a big question that coming up with the answer would be, would be very, very compelling. So can I ask the, the, the two of you, and, and maybe Dan, I'll, I'll go to you first. Um, how, how speculative is this? How confident? are you is this the answer is this an answer is it a fun idea where on that spectrum are we it's a very new idea which from the preliminary calculations that we did seemed to come out very <laughs> surprisingly plausible <laughs> and so that was kind of the stage we're at i mean the paper was to provoke more detailed calculations, but also, I mean, one of the key things is that if these things do exist, okay, there's a lot of questions. I mean, strongly interacting condensates is, you know, a very new field and, you know, it's, there's a lot to be learned on, on, on that in more detailed theory. But because we know if this thing gets broken, we know exactly how it will decay. We know right. the energies of the gammas it will emit. We know it will emit deuterons. We know the pions because the the decays of this particle have been studied so well. So if the condensate gets broken, you will get a massive flash of gamma rays with a certain characteristic energy spectrum. And so one of the things we're really keen for was to actually put that out so that astronomers could actually look for these kind of signatures. And there's been some follow-up papers where astronomers already tried to kind of look at the gamma ray spectra using these kind of hexaquark models, which could rule in or rule out this, this new possibility. I was going to ask that. Is it, you know, are there observational runs going on now? Has there, has there been some interest 
uh, garnered out of, out of this one for, for people to start looking back through old data or collecting new data to say, hang on, is this there? Can we see this? Yeah, that's all going on. Yeah. So there's been, you know, there's at least a few papers like coming out with that, trying to constrain the, you know, the contribution of hexaquarks to dark matter from the initial observations. And there's recent work that Emily will probably know about, about how the location of dark matter in the universe seems to have some correlation with gamma emission. Uh, there's quite some quite recent paper on that. So there's things are moving, but it's, I mean, as you talked about in the start, it's, it's exciting and unknown physics. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I can add, I mean, the bar is like here, right? It's not kind of like you, you sort of you come up with a new idea for dark matter and you just pump it out in the next journal paper and you move on and do something else with your research. Right. When you ask Serene, one of, as you say, the biggest questions, and I would argue not just astronomy, but in all science, uh, you, there is a level of um, kind of carefulness and a level of proof which you've got to get to before you can get to an acceptance. And um, by no means, I think David McCall is saying that we're there yet, but they're saying, hey, we've got this idea, it's consistent with some of the characteristics we know dark matter to have, and let's test more and see how far we can run with this. Goodness me, very, very exciting times on, on the particle physics side and on the, on the astronomy side. <laughs> Emily, I don't know, there, there have been, I sort of feel like there have been a whole bunch of different, you know, peaks of excitement and moves in a particular direction about dark matter. I remember talking to a, to a particle theorist a, a couple of years ago about, you know, raking through all of the data that's come out of the Large Hadron Collider for, for new physics, for supersymmetric particles and all sorts of other nonsense like that. There are so many ideas out there. Um, what's your what's your feeling emily on is you know is this is this the the right area to be looking in uh, should we be focusing on on other things as well is it is it a matter of looking in every possible direction that we can we can go what's your what's your view on how we should be approaching dark matter at this point that's a <laughs> that's a very big question but i think we have to acknowledge the progress that we've made in this field. I mean, when we started out, we wrote down our list of, well, it could be different theories of gravity. It could be these machos. It could be these wimps. It could be this, 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 and this. We've gone a long way into a lot of these investigations. We've um, reached the point where we've ruled out so many modified theories of gravity, for example, that just don't fit the observations. So we move on. We've ruled out so many types of machos, these big objects, like, um, you know, just extra bits of stuff left over from galaxies and things like that. We've ruled out those. We've ruled out lots of other particles as well, like the neutrino. So it is a process of elimination. And, but all of those processes are done at the same time with which we get more observations and we get more understanding. Uh, we've got now things like uh, the first light from the universe so this is called the cosmic microwave background. So we have lots of information about what dark matter should do to influence that piece of light from the very, very early universe. And that gets folded into the set of criteria. And now, and then we've got things like, we've now been able to measure things like the abundance of lithium in the universe. So we have constraints on what dark matter can do or not do to change that number. And every time we do these things, we are now, we're narrowing down the sets of possibilities, I think, 
what we can do. And sure, there's lots of extreme theories out there, and I don't, if you've got a really favorite dark matter um, candidate theory, I don't want to be too dismissive. But the general consensus amongst um, physicists and astronomers is that we're moving into this, this particle physics uh, solution broadly and something like, if it's not exactly this particle, something like it seems to be the top uh, probabilistic uh, playing card, if you like. It's, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting stuff. I find uh, as, we're, as we're getting to the point in this particular episode where we're going to need to turn to some of the, some of the audience questions. I think we've, we've, over the last 45 minutes or so, we've covered a lot of territory. We've looked at one of the biggest questions that we have in, in astronomy, one of, the, one of the biggest unanswered questions in science, I think. We've gone down a, a, a bit of a, a particle physics uh, rabbit hole there, but uncovered a whole new kind of, of particle that we didn't even know was there before. There were hints, but now we've got some really good evidence for it. And not only that, but this particle potentially helps us to solve a problem on the other end of the distance scale. We're going from tiny fundamental things of a minute fraction of, of, uh, of a centimeter and a tiny, tiny period of time to the length and breadth and history of the universe. This is, this is a big story and it's been really so much fun to have you on the show, Dan and Mikhail. Thank you so much. Will you stick around to answer a few questions for the next 10 minutes or so? Got a bit of time? Definitely. Fantastic. All right, Dan, I just should just warn you, you're, you're, on, uh, you're on mute there. So if you want okay. to answer a question, let's go to some of the questions from the audience. We've had a whole pile of them. Um, so I'll just sift through a few of them. The first one that I'm going to come to is, maybe we should have addressed this, this one up front, Emily, is the, uh, the difference between dark matter and dark energy. There's, there's a couple of questions in the, in the Q&A chat here asking, hang on, does, does the 85% that we're talking about, does that, does that include the dark energy? Does, does this particle account for dark energy? So Emily, could you give us just a quick primer on what's dark energy first? And then maybe, maybe Dan and Mikhail, you could answer as to whether or not that's part of this question. So Emily, over to you first. Yeah, dark energy is another really embarrassing part of astronomy. <laughs> In fact, so if we, if we, we've been talking about matter, so this is um, mass, stuff that has mass, stuff that um, interacts by gravity, right? Now, it turns out that uh, matter only makes up something like 30% of all the energy budget in our entire universe. So that's the dark matter and the ordinary matter that we understand. So if we have if we took the energy budget of the entire universe, we've got 5% the stuff we know, 25% dark matter, and then there's a 70% of dark energy. And yeah, that's really... So we thought, we thought dark matter was embarrassing, dark energy is even more embarrassing. Okay, so I mean, that, that does sound like a podcast for a whole other time, but Mikhail and, and, and Dan, is, is what we're talking about here with the D-star hexaquark, does that have any, any impact on the, the whole question of dark energy at all, or is that a whole other topic? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean. No, you're, I, 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 no, uh, so it's, uh, no, uh, sorry, it's, it's just matter. 
So the question for Dark Energy should be addressed to innovative people. <laughs> let's, let's just solve one problem at a yeah. time. One problem at a time. I was really hoping you had something for that and maybe an inflation in the universe. Can you, come on, can you help us I'm out? Got, <laughs> all right. This other thing I need to look up in my face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's not it's not the dark energy, it's just 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 the dark matter. But it's a it's an interesting problem. Maybe we'll we'll just have to dig a bit deeper on the dark energy next time. But look, on to the next question, which is um, I mean there's been a couple on this one as well which is there have been plenty of other searches for, for dark matter. I mean, there's been one actually not, not terribly far away from here in the, is it, is it pronounced Bowlby? Bowlby Potash Mine near States. Mm. Um, there was, a, there was a, a big underground experiment in the Italian mountains and so on looking for dark matter. Like, are those still going on, those experiments which are, which are looking for signs of whatever the hell these particles are. Are those experiments still running or is that, is that era been and gone? Emily, maybe we, we start with you on that one. Yeah, um, absolutely. So the kind of experiments that Dan and Michael are involved in and been talking about is something like the particle colliders where you're smashing stuff together at high energy and you're creating the particles for you to study. Uh, the kinds of experiments that are running, for example, at Bowlby Mine, are looking at particles coming from the universe just naturally, if you like, and trying to understand those. So there, it's, we're interested in neutrinos, for example, are one of the things that we do try to detect with these kind of um, instruments. Now, it's very, very hard to detect something that doesn't want to interact. That's, it's almost like it's, it's against you at this point, right? Uh, so neutrinos are for, um, a great example of things that are really hard to detect. And uh, anything that's going to be weakly interacting is going to be like that. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna say this to the end, but I'll tell you now because I think this is the. If you're gonna take away one fact about dark matter, that's not. It's obviously the D star hexagon. Is <laughs> your other fact that you can take away with you? Um, to give you an idea of what a what a needle in a haystack this is, if we added up what we anticipate to be all the dark matter that's in the volume of the Earth, then you get something like the mass of a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely mental image. I love it. The dark matter, <laughs> dark matter squirrel. I mean, that does relate to one of the other questions, which is in the list here, which is, you know, if there's all this stuff out there, is, is there any chance of a rocket bumping into dark matter in space? And I've, I've now got a mental image of the, you know, the SpaceX rocket going up and just bashing into a dark matter squirrel on its way. But I'm gathering from what you're saying, Emily, that that's, that's very unlikely. It's incredibly spread out. Would that that's be right? That's right, yeah. So you yeah. take your squirrel and you've got to spread it out over the entire <laughs> volume of the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is going places we don't need it to go. All right, <laughs> next question for, for Mikhail and Dan. I might, might throw this one to, to you, Mikhail. Um, how do you measure? How do you measure? I keep coming back to this. 10 to the minus 24 seconds is a ludicrously short period of time. I think we'd all agree on that. So how on earth do you make measurements on something that lasts for that short a period of time? And I realize the answer to that will be, it's technical, but if you can in, you know, a very short period of time, like a minute, how do you, how do you, how do you measure things that last for that short period of time? That's crazy. 
Well, uh, uh, you might heard about uncertainty principle, which tells you like uh, if you measure some distances with certain uh, accuracy, you cannot measure momentum with uh, similar accuracy. Now, that means that if your particle lives for very short time, the accuracy of your energy is predetermined, more or less. So if you construct the momentum of all your particles, which you measure from the decay, and you try to reconstruct the mass, you don't have one mass, you have a spread. Even if you measure all of your momentum and direction of your particles perfectly. And the spread in mass, due to this uncertainty principle, more or less, exactly gives you a lifetime. So in this sense, the shorter your particle leave, the better, because then the more clearer you see the spread. Right. Well, if what, your particle is long leaf, it's just a needle. So what you're saying, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, is you're not actually getting in there and going, okay, there, that, that one there, that one there. You know, you're not measuring 10 to the minus 24 of a second. You're no. not starting your stopwatch and finishing it at 10 to the minus 24 of a second <laughs> no. later. You're inferring that time frame from huge amounts of, of data that you're picking up mm. on presumably very many of these interactions, these decays of the, of the D star. You're collecting lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of data and working backwards to say, well, that, that thing that's giving us all of these decays, it had to have lasted for this period of time. Is that right? That the maths is telling yeah. you that. Basically. So let's say you have distal decays into, let's say, four particles. You sum their energy, you get one number. You sum it again, you get another number. Third, second, millions of times. And then their most probable number gives you its mass. And the distribution flow of these masses gives its lifetime. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I, that, the, the whole 10 to 24, 10 to the minus 24 was, was really beginning to, to break my brain. Um, Dan, I'm going to throw this one to you because perhaps you could, you could um, explain where this D-star hexaquark fits into our particle zoo. The question that came up was, so does, do we need to add the D-star hexaquark to the standard model? Is this something that we need mm. to sort of expand mm. out <clears throat> our, our understanding? So maybe, first of all, what is the standard model? Oh, I mean, so this, the standard model is the, sort of the, <clears throat> the basic, as we envisage them at the moment, fundamental particles from which everything around us and in the universe is made. So a key grouping in the standard model of particles called quarks, which interact via the strong force. So you have kind of light quarks, which are called up and down, and then you can go up to strange, charm, bottom, top. So there's a whole family of different quarks. And this D-star particle is made from the same quarks as what the proton and neutron are made from, the up and down quarks, so the very lightest quarks. Right. So we're not expanding the standard model as such. We're sort of expanding the, the repertoire of things we can make with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. Right, so the D-star hexaquark is kind of like a weird cousin of the proton and neutron. It is, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. One, one that we really haven't seen before. Very, <laughs> very, 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 you know, you, you sort of open the door at the family party, oh no, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a weird yeah. one. 
Fantastic. Having a having a quick look, we've probably got time for maybe for maybe one more question. Um, so while I'm digging through, Emily, do you do you have any questions that you want to throw at uh, at Dan and Mikhail? Well, my original one was that, yeah, can you solve all my other problems? But <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think you've actually done pretty well tonight, actually, Emily. I'd, I'd just keep quiet if I were you. Um, I think we might finish on this one, which is, um, could, you, could you talk a little bit more? And I guess, I mean, Emily, you might be able to talk to this one, but I think Mikhail and, and, and Dan as well. The question is, what sort of telescopes, detectors and observations would, would you need to find or eliminate the D-star hexaquark. And I think you, you talked before about, you know, as you say, the, the interactions with potentially very high energy uh, light photons, you might see a, see a signal there. But can you, can you talk any more to that? What sort of observations would you really like to see happening next in order to, to try to nail this one down? Well, you guys tell me what what would you know, and I'll tell you how to do it. Give me the start of a beautiful collaboration. Well, there are plenty of detectors already running. Yep. So it seems right now we know what should be the signatures of this dark matter. We can look up an already collected data, and detectors like uh, Fermilat telescope, which is flying in space and looking for high energy particles is very well suited to it. So we would like to have a better directional resolution from the same telescopes, and that's probably in years to come. Or let's say we can use Moon as a shield against all of our cosmic rays and look for high energy photon splashes with high multiplicity, which is coming out from the Moon. So that's one of the possibilities. And then if you place your detector close to a moon, you are very well shielded from everything else, and you can see the dark matter break up by flying by uh, cosmic rays. Mm. But things like that might be a good idea. I, I, do love, I do love the way someone can just casually say, and if you just use the moon as a shield, <laughs> like if, that, if that doesn't get your points at yeah. your next cocktail yeah. party, I don't know. <laughs> Dan, over to you. What's your, what's your response? Yeah, I mean, just to add, I mean, uh, it is a very unusual particle, and one of its unusual properties is it very much likes to decay to a deuteron. So when these condensates break, it might well be that there's a kind of a associated with a kind of a deuterium excess, which is kind of a quite a rare um, uh, sort of nucleus in the universe, and that might be another indirect signature of the role of this D star if if deuterium correlates with dark matter. Okay. But Emily can do that next week. All right. Hang <laughs> <laughs> on, I already signed up for the moon mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got we got at least several funding applications to get in uh, fairly quickly, Emily, on that one. Listen, we are going to have to wrap this one up. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, I would like to just express my thanks along with the thanks of a whole bunch of people who are throwing their, their thanks through on the Q&A here to, to Dan and Mikhail. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Sisyphe Podcast. It's been great fun talking to you. Look, I really hope you're right. On the other hand, it's always really nice when science kind of goes, that's a great idea, but here are some issues. Let's debate this again for another, I don't know, 50 years or something. So I really look forward to, to finding out what happens from here. Thank you once again for joining us.
on the show. Thank you to everyone who's been listening at home and joining us for this very special event. Uh, we don't normally do these live broadcasts, so it's, it's been great fun to, to do it. And thank you to everyone at the York Festival of Ideas for making this happen. I should point out, we have been recording this, so if you want to go back and watch it again, or if you only just managed to join us for the very end and you're really confused at this point, go and watch it again from the very beginning. Just go to yorkfestivalofideas.com for all the details. And you can go there as well to find out the details of what else is happening in the rest of the festival over this coming weekend. There's still a bunch of stuff happening tomorrow and on Sunday. So go to yorkfestivalideas.com for all of those details. Another website that you really should check out is syzygy.fm, which is a home of our podcast. We're also all over the social medias. We're on Twitter and on Facebook and Instagram and all of those as well. Absolutely. So, and if you had a question, I saw there were some amazing questions that we just unfortunately yes. didn't get time to, to look yeah. at today. To everyone so if you do have some know. of those, do uh, you've got a contact form on our um, syzygy.fm website. So you can travel on there and um, contact us that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really sorry we couldn't get to all of the questions, but we do have a finite amount of time in the history of the universe. Look, we'll be back again with another episode of the Syzygy podcast in, as we always say, roughly a week or two. We'll see how things go. In the meantime, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mikhail and Dan, once again. And we'll catch you all next time. Emily, see you later. Thank you very much for joining us on the Zoom. Good night, everybody. Bye.